everyone. It's July 1st and we want to welcome you to your first day of residency. Welcome to the internet work. This is part two of our Q&A series entitled No More Clerking Around for our newest PGY1s in internal medicine all across Canada today. I'm Allison. I'm one of the creators of the internet work. And I'm Zara. I'm a producer of the internet work. And Leah, who is our other co-producer, is out in Greece still. Still. Um, so she is not here. Uh, but she is one of our producers at uh, the Internet Works. So uh, without further ado, here we go. At Kevin John Um asks, what steps would you take during the day while warding if you have absolutely no idea what to do for a patient uh, and no time to go read? Good question. So, uh, at most schools, at some point, you will be a fly-in resident, which means that you are covering a team that you may not know. Uh, sometimes that will involve rounding during the day, and sometimes that just call uh, that just um, involves uh, covering the team overnight. Uh, so the first thing for everybody that I would say is don't underestimate the importance of handover. Make sure your list is updated. Make sure that any overnight issues or anything that need to be followed up on are emphasized to the person who's flying in. Remember that um, when you are handing over, you know, for, to somebody who doesn't know the list, those are the main, um, those are kind of the main resources that the fly-in resident has um, to to kind of look at when they're getting the call from the nurses. So that's the first thing I'd say. Handover is very important. Yeah, I sound like I'm always nagging my team about handover, but it literally is key if you're flying in. Update your list. Very important. You will be the best resident if you always update your list. True. Um, if you do end up encountering a patient or a patient scenario that you've never seen and you're rounding on them during the day, do your best to make a plan. Um, and then remember that most of the time you will be reviewing with staff or a senior later on in the day, um, or ask your staff or senior, somebody who might know the patient a little bit better, um, to come see that patient with you and walk through a plan for patients who might be a little bit more complex or somebody that, uh, you don't, uh, necessarily, um, know all that well. Um, and then afterwards, it's really important to read around that case and say, what did I know? What did I not know? And how would I approach this scenario, uh, next time? Um, because there will be a next time. There's always a next time. There's always a next time. Um, so those would be my main tips. Get your good handover. Um, do your best to make a plan from what you know. Do your thorough exam. Look at the labs. Read the chart. Look at what other people thought the plan was going to be a couple days before. And then make a decision about what you're going to do. And then review with your staff and senior. And that's generally how your days will go. Uh, the important part of your PGY-1 is really doing your best to try to learn how to make plans and commit to them um, as you get uh, through your year. For sure. We like commitment. We do. Okay. Do you have a question so, for um, Yeah, I do. <laughs> I, have a, I have another question for you. So um, at Jamie Shell asks, how do I initiate a code if I find an unresponsive patient? So this was my number one, or one of my number one. I had many number one fears uh, going into my uh, first call shift uh, as a JMR or a junior resident. Uh, so it's definitely a good question, and I think it's on probably a lot of junior learners' mind when they are going into uh, starting to work. Um, so I would say, first of all, uh, in terms of definitions, the true definition of a code blue is a cardiac arrest. 
Um, but you will notice in the hospital that code blues are called uh, many times. So they are called really anytime a patient is in distress and more assistance is required. Uh, so, for example, uh, pre-code scenarios would be if someone's having a seizure or if they're in severe respiratory distress. Um, I do think it's important to note here that if you, if you yourself are ever in a situation where a patient is unstable and you need more help, it's never wrong to call a code blue. Um, and, and that's kind of a for sure way of knowing that you will get the help that you need as soon as possible. So I think what uh, Jamie Shell is asking here is specifically in a cardiac arrest uh, scenario. So if you walk into a room and if your patient is unresponsive, uh, the first thing that you should do is check their pulse. Um, if someone else is in the room with you, you can ask them to check the pulse in a different location. Um, so if you both agree there's no pulse, uh, then this is a cardiac arrest and you need to start chest compressions right away. So that's number one, start chest compressions. Um, after the chest compressions have started, then you can ask someone to go through the process of calling a code blue. Um, and this is also something I didn't know. Uh, practically how this works is that the hospital's paging system is contacted uh, with the exact location of the patient, and then a code blue is called overhead. In addition to being called overhead, the code blue response team will be individually paged. So sometimes this could be you. Um, at our institution, uh, the Code Blue response team is the senior medical resident, the on-call junior residents and clerks, um, the ICU residents and staff, the respiratory therapist, and the critical care response team nurse. Um, so while you're waiting for all these people to come help you and bring all the equipment, the most important thing to do is just continue those chest compressions. Um, if your patient is not optimally uh, located, you could try to address this as well. So, um, you know, if the patient is in a bathroom stall or uh, in the bathroom uh, in their room or somewhere that's anywhere not in their bed, essentially, is not optimal. Um, but all, all the while, you should be continuing chest compressions if you are moving them. Um, there should be some sort of crash cart on the ward that you could ask for, but really I would say that things like a timer, drugs, backboard, IV access, blood work, airway management, all of that will come when your assistance comes and the materials come. Um, so really, I think as a junior learner, the best thing you can do is identify a cardiac arrest and initiate compressions. I would agree. <laughs> Anesthesia usually also comes if they're oh true anesthesia um, in the hospital, and um, just remember that you've been trained uh, to do compressions. And even if you're the first person there, because you're the fastest runner on the team, um, just if you start your compressions, stick to your basics that you learned in BLS and ACLS, mm -hmm. uh, then that's the most important thing. And if you find that you're the junior learner but you have to run the code, just fall back on your ACLS, ACLS principles that you've trained for. Yeah, all the algorithms. So Allison, I have another question for you uh, from at Arden Azim, and uh, she's asking, um, what do you do after a patient dies in terms of like paperwork, next steps? Um, good question. I didn't actually know this, and actually, 
A lot of family asked me this when I was a resident and I didn't know how to answer the question. Um, So the first thing that you do when a patient dies, uh, usually it'll be a nurse that calls you um, or it'll be after a code, uh, is uh, declare the patient. Um, So what that involves is basically an examination and there's different ways to do this. Um, but generally looking for cardiac activity, respirator- respiratory activity, neurologic activity, um, and examining that uh, there is the absence of those uh, before you declare a person um, dead. Uh, and then uh, usually the family, you can ask you know, when you're doing the declaration if the family wants to stay or not. Sometimes I find they want to stay, and sometimes I find that it can be a bit traumatizing. They would rather... Um, step out, so make sure you ask them before you do that. And then with regards to paperwork and next steps, usually there's a death certificate that you have to fill out. Um, Sometimes the nurses are able to do that for you. And um, then in terms of what happens afterwards, uh, really depends on where you come from and what the protocol is. Every hospital does have a different protocol, and every jurisdiction actually has a different protocol with what happens next. And so uh, making sure you're familiar with that. The best people I find who know that tend to be actually the charge nurses um, or the nurses on the ward um, who sort of help manage uh, what happens after a patient dies. And so getting familiar with what happens at your specific institution uh, is helpful because when a, when a family member asks, uh, what do I do now, um, you can, you can uh, point them to the right direction. Yeah, I would say yeah, exactly. There are quite a few nuances that are very specific to uh, hospital sites and provinces and even countries um, that we won't get into the nitty gritty today. But I, I agree with Allison. I think maybe as a, as a junior learner, one of the best things you can do is actually uh, take opportunities in the daytime. So if a patient does pass away on your team in the daytime, make sure that uh, you go with the senior to to see that process so that next time, if, if you are alone, uh, when it does happen, it won't be your first time. Yeah. So going with this conversation, we actually have another question from at I am Wendy Yee who asks, how do you maintain wellness in uh, after challenging codes or patient situations, Allison? Um, so I think that's a, that's a really good question. I don't think that there is a lot of science um, to this. <laughs> Uh, I think evidence based. There's, yeah, I don't know that there is. At least I don't. I don't know of too much evidence based um, RCT about maintaining wellness after a code. But we do know that um, codes and difficult patient encounters um, do have a very uh, strong impact on how residents are getting through their residency. So it is important to recognize, um, first of all, when. Uh, you do have a situation or a code that, that is challenging that you're able to recognize that and say to yourself, you know, that wasn't ideal or this was hard because of whatever reason it was hard. Um, another thing that is helpful, um, especially as you become more senior, is leading debriefs um, after code. So if you remember, even as, you know, a junior resident or as a senior, um, sometimes codes are traumatic. And, but also sometimes it's the first per, it's the patient it's the like medical students first code ever and this may be the first time they've actually seen CPR in real life this may be their first patient death it may be a patient that they know and so in those situations I find it's helpful to debrief and how you do that I think um, depends on who the person is and, and how you like to do it so personally I like to do it one-on-one so I like to make sure that you know I talk to the um, either like whoever whoever on, on the code team and talk about how they felt about the code, 
um, what they think went well, what they wish was di- what was different, um, and um, how they overall feel, and recognize that there are situations in which um, you're supposed to feel either anger or frustration or sadness, and that's that's okay. And, and making sure that your resident or your medical student knows that you're you're open to having those conversations. Um, the other thing I think is. Um, you don't necessarily always have to talk to the code team if there's somebody that maybe you're unfamiliar with, making sure that you have a support group around you. So that could be um, friends, family, that could be other um, people in medicine, different specialties, making sure that you have conversations with, with them about why and, and what happened, um, I think is really important. Um, what do you think? I agree. I think, uh, I think what you're saying mostly is that they should talk to someone. Um, whether that be uh, the team there or uh, people outside of hospital, uh, which I agree with. I, I would also say don't hesitate to... I, I often, as a junior, had a lot of questions about the codes, and sometimes I would be hesitant to ask the senior because I didn't want them to think that I was like questioning what happened, um, but I was just genuinely interested in, you know, why, why did we do this instead of that? Uh, and I think definitely I would encourage you to talk to your seniors and the people around you about what happened and why. Yeah, and I think it's also important if you are running the code to get feedback on your code, which doesn't happen that often, about how you can improve whatever different assets of Hmm. um, how you're running the code um, from people who maybe are a bit more senior to you. So always remember that your team is there to support you. They're not there to make things worse um, or make things more (laughs) difficult for you. And so um, make sure you turn to the people who are there to support you to try and Um, get through some of the more challenging situations in medicine. We have a a bit of a lighter question here. Um, So Allison, you can go first. Um, At Daniel Aladha is asking, what's one thing you wish you knew before starting IM? Um... (laughs) This is tricky. So I'll go in and saying I don't think I knew that much uh, starting internal medicine. I definitely learned a lot about the, the job um, while being a resident. Well, by the time I came on day one and you were in R3, I, I thought you were like, God. That's nice of you. <laughs> um, so I think the one thing, I mean, there's so many things that I, I wish I knew. Uh, one thing that I do wish I knew before starting internal medicine was that everything kind of takes longer than expected. And that can be anything from the way the hospital functions to completing a research project or making a podcast like this one. <laughs> um, everything kind of just takes a little bit more time. And so, you know, be careful not to pack too many things into your schedule because you think that, you know, it's only going to take two months because two months inevitably turns into like six months, turns into a year. Um, and uh, overdoing yourself is definitely a way uh, to, to kind of burn out or, or get really tired in residency. So I think that's what I would say. But yeah. there's a lot of things that, I, that, mm-hmm. that, are, that come to mind. I think what I would say is maybe when I started residency, I thought that burnout was something that I could avoid or something that wouldn't affect me. Um, but I kind of wish I knew that burnout is something that I I personally think that burnout affects everybody in medicine um, and that 
it's good to know that it would it will affect you at some point. Um, and what I learned throughout my PGY one year was uh, times where I was most vulnerable to burnout. And now in PGY two, I can kind of anticipate when I when I will be burnt out, and I and I can anticipate when I will be burnt out, and then I can do things to, um, to kind of alleviate that for myself. Another question that we had from at Christina Ma 37 is how do you learn to become a good senior or teacher for your clerks and med students? That's a good question. This is a really good question. What do you think? Um, hmm. I, I think when I entered PGY1, I, uh, I could not even picture myself being a, a senior resident uh, or even a teacher um, at that time. Um, I think a lot of it is going through the process of residency and just trusting the process and you will become a good senior and teacher. Um, it starts slow. So as you start to develop your knowledge base, uh, you'll, you'll see yourself um, taking opportunities to teach the clerks. That's a good question. I think what I would say is never underestimate how much whoever is below you looks up to you. So med students like will like they think their juniors are amazing and their seniors are amazing and juniors think their senior and the staff are amazing mm-hmm. and seniors think their staff the fellow the fellow and the staff are amazing. Yeah. Everyone so never underestimate the power of just going through the motions, like people learn so much from you just by how you role model. So how Mm -hmm. you interact with people, how you call for consults, how you're acting with families. And so much of that is something that actually can't be taught on paper. I mean, there, there are ways that we get taught to have conversations, but so many, any of the, the clerks or medical students or juniors I've had who said this person is amazing. So much of it has come from how, that specific person has interacted with their team and with their patients and, and, um, how that actually translates in and of itself into teaching. So without doing much, you're already a teacher, um, through all of residency. Um, if you are looking into being something like an instructor or somebody who teaches a lot on CTU, um, I would say the first couple things is, um, always remember that you can be a teacher. There is never a level at which you can't be a teacher. Um, make sure you read up on the topic that you're going to teach and then develop sort of what um, some people would call a teaching script. So how am I going to explain this problem to the other people on the team? And how would I, and what are the, what are the things that I want them to um, take away from this session? And if you do that, if you give them three take-home points, that's three take-home points that they may not have known before. And as you get more and more teaching scripts, you'll find it'll be easier and easier to just kind of add to those and um, kind of pull them out of your pocket whenever you're on call and that topic comes up um, or uh, you're rounding and a topic comes up. And you'll also find it'll be easier to sort of create new ones as you have uh, more experience uh, in, in, in clinical scenarios. That's good. I, I would also say in striving to be a good senior teacher, um, never be afraid to shake up how you do things. Um, I feel like every week still I'm changing how I go about things and how I do things. Um, and it's important uh, to know that it's okay not to sort of always teach the same way or to always run your team the same way. Yeah. And bedside rounds. Yes. Emphasis on bedside rounds because we don't do it enough. And it's a very good way to teach and have your team uh, members know all the patients on the team.
funnest thing about fellowship? The funnest thing about fellowship is that, um, well, I'm doing a general medicine fellowship, so it's a bit different if you're doing subspecialty because you have to learn a whole <laughs> new field. Um, but for general medicine, the funnest thing is thinking about, and also maybe part of the scariest thing, but the funnest thing is maybe thinking about, you know, how do I make my practice my own and what kind of doctor do I want to be in the future? Um, Hmm. And what does that look like to me? And that's something that's been very interesting to explore um, over fellowship. Uh, And I still fortunately have a year to go to try to figure it out. Um, But I think it it just points to the fact that medicine's always changing and your career and what you understand about medicine is always changing and it keeps it exciting and it keeps um, it interesting. And you always have all these opportunities that are available that you're just um, trying to keep up with. So I think that has been fun. Also, it's fun as a fellow to, to really be able to mentor uh, mm. younger learners. I think that is really great to watch people go from medical students to PGY1s to PGY3s, and then all of a sudden they're smarter than you. <laughs> and they know way more about everything than you do. And that's, that's awesome. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the internet work entitled No More Clerking Around. We're really excited to welcome all of our new doctors into our internal medicine family all across Canada. This episode was recorded and produced by Alison Lai, Zara Morali, and Leah Karianopoulos and overseen by Dr. Daniel Brant Vegas. Music production by Lakshman Vizantha Mohan. As always, we have our on-the-go resources at www.theinternetwork.com. If you like this episode, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're at all interested in joining our team, please send us an email at theinternetwork at gmail.com. Good luck on your first day of residency, and we hope to see you again soon. Mm-hmm.